Welcome to the Myopia Exchange. It's our new podcast series where we'll talk all things myopia from research to practice. Each Myopia Exchange will be about 15 minutes long, give or take, depending on the nerdy goodness, and will be launched weekly. Today, I'd like to welcome Professor Lyndon Jones and Professor Debbie Jones from the Centre of Ocular Research and Education, or CORE, and the University of Waterloo in Canada. Lyndon is one of the world's foremost contact lens researchers with about a million published papers. Is that right, Lyndon? About a million published papers? Yeah, maybe a few less than that. A few less than that. A bit less than a million. Couple, knock a couple zeros off. And he was the lead author and committee chair for the International Myopia Institute's Industry Guidelines and Ethical Considerations for Myopia Control White Paper. Quite a mouthful, but a very important paper. Now, Debbie was a co-author and co-investigator on the landmark three-year randomised control trial of Cooper Vision's MySight lenses for myopia control and now provides a compulsory education to Canadian optometrists prior to their accessing MySight. So as you can tell, we've definitely got a pair of experts here on board when it comes to today's topic. So Lyndon and Debbie, welcome to the Myopia Exchange. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, we've had some momentous news this week. The CooperVision MySight contact lens has been FDA approved for myopia control in children. This has created good shockwaves right across the world. So, Debbie, I wanted to ask you first, what does the FDA approval mean for MySight and what does it mean for myopia control in general? You're absolutely right that it is a momentous uh, piece of news that came out last week. And in terms of FDA approval, what that means is that the FDA have really validated and confirmed the research that was done through the MySight study and acknowledged that the data is sound and that it is actually a product that does what it says it does and actually uh, controls the progression of myopia. So it's a hugely exciting time um, for the US, but really for worldwide as well to get FDA validation of that information. And Lyndon, can I ask you, is this FDA approval only relevant for the US or does it have implications elsewhere in the world? That's a great question, Kate. And, and of course, in terms of implications for the US, as, as Debbie just said, it's, it, it's massive. But I think what it will do is it will uh, make other jurisdictions around the world sit up and go, you know what, it, it's really hard to get FDA approval. FDA approval is, is one of those sort of very high benchmarks that people certainly look for in a product. Of course, my site's been approved in Europe, so it's CE marked and is also used in other areas in the world. Um, New Zealand, Australia uh, uh, as examples. But I think the fact that it's now, uh, again, as Debbie just said, sort of validated for the US market really does have uh, big implications for myopia control in general. You know, people have been waiting for there to be an on-label product approved in, in the US market for quite some time. And the fact that it's started, hopefully will now lead to, to other on-label approvals in the US and, and maybe even um, help other jurisdictions be able to approve things like MySight, plus other products, of course, that are being looked at at the moment as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely an important product. And that's something that I wanted to talk to both of you about is we have a vast array of products available. Obviously, MySight is this first one to pass this very high bar in terms of achieving FDA approval. It's already achieved CE approval, which has relevance for other countries. We have a lot of other treatments available for my AP control. We've got orthokeratology, we've got atropine, we've got various spectacle lens options. So my site's the one that's jumped this bar. But Lyndon, can we discuss the difference between something being evidence-based, a treatment being evidence-based and a treatment being on-label? What does that mean for a prescriber? 
Yeah, so, so when a practitioner really is, is looking at deciding whether to utilize any of these myopia control procedures, um, it's really very important for them to consider the evidence that's around that. We're, we're looking at a, uh, at a population that that's obviously is, is very vulnerable. Uh, we're looking at parents who often could be very easily persuaded that in order to prevent that myopia occurring, that uh, they will jump on any idea that a, that a practitioner suggests to them to be able to do something good for their kid. You know, I, I've got two kids, and certainly if I, if, uh, I was a high myope and, and a practitioner said to me, hey, you know, we, we've got these opportunities, it's going to prevent your, your kid becoming a minus six myope, then automatically I'm going to be looking to try and you know, listen to what those opportunities are. So the, the onus, and, and, and as we looked at in the that um, the IMI paper, the, the industry guidelines and ethical considerations, the ethical considerations for the prescriber, I think, are at a very high bar when you're looking at this vulnerable population. So when you're considering whether to prescribe a myopia control treatment, whether it be on-label or off-label, um, it's important to, re to realize that there are many different opportunities and that it, it's beholden on you to understand the current evidence that supports the use of that option in the age of the child that you're looking to fit. And that may well be very different for, for example, a, a five-year-old compared with a 10 or 12-year-old. So knowing the evidence to support that prescribing decision I think is, is really, really important. And, and certainly Debbie, who, who you know, sees many more of these, these kids than I do, both in the clinic and the research environment, I, I think Debs, you, you would agree with, uh, with that. Yeah, I think the important thing about off-label is it doesn't mean it can't be used. It just means it doesn't have the authorization in your jurisdiction to be used in that way. So if we consider a simple example, such as a bottle of uh, Tylenol, acetaminophen, whatever it's called in your country, if the label says take one and you take two because you've got a thumping headache, you've used that product off-label doesn't mean it's wrong or doesn't mean it's necessarily dangerous. You just didn't use it in the way that it has authorization in your jurisdiction. So practitioners shouldn't be afraid of off-label usage. They just need to be well-informed and they need to look to the literature and look to the CE conferences and the podcasts and the web-based stuff and all of the great information that's out there and just make sure that they make their mind up that what they're using is appropriate for that patient. And I'm just going to add in there, interestingly, some of the professional bodies around the world and certainly the Canadian one actually indicate that it's practitioner's responsibility to keep up with the evidence and make decisions accordingly. So not many professional bodies are prepared to go out on a limb and say you should be managing your myopia, myopic patients in a certain way, but they're indicating you need to keep abreast of the information that's available. Yeah, that is actually a, a fairly advanced stance for a professional body to take and definitely the case here in Australia as well. We've had a fairly wide uptake or, or at least recognition of myopia control as an important area and a growing area of practice. Uh, yet in the UK, the um, College of Optometrists has has really sort of been quite reserved and, and they've sort of held back a little bit with myopia control. And in the US, there's definitely, I was wanting to ask you too, with all the education you do in the US, there's definitely some professional reticence around myopia control. So for the practitioners who perhaps have thought or who have said, oh, myopia control is, it's unsafe, 
or it's not validated or you know, it isn't a necessity, there's, there's no point to all of this. What does the FDA approval mean to them? Do you think this is going to mean a lot in terms of getting uh, US practitioners to, to simply understand the, the value of myopia control? Um, I think it will. In all honesty, FDA approval um, is something that practitioners will be able to look at and say, well, it's got approval, so then maybe I should be using that product. Um, just as we said, and, and Lyndon indicated, just because there's only one approved product, it doesn't mean it's the only choice. And I think practitioners now will sit up and say, okay, there is an approved product, but what else is available? I should be looking to the literature or more importantly, probably to CE meetings um, and online education because practitioners don't always have time to go to the scientific literature and work out for themselves um, kind of what the literature is telling them. So I think it's up to the likes of yourself and, and us and other groups to make sure that as many practitioners as possible are educated in the options available. It's really interesting actually um, doing education in the US. I don't, I don't know how many of you, your listeners actually go to the US. When you see drug adverts on the TV, it is absolutely amazing how much of the advert at the end of the advert is devoted to all of the contraindications for, for the drug. And yet in, in Canada, we can have you know, the same advert for a drug and none of those contraindications uh, come across. So the US always has been very, very um, sort of cautious um, about the use of, of anything in, in the medical field, whether it be um, you know, things like myopia control or, or the use of drugs. So I think the fact that there is now an FDA approved uh, product will absolutely increase the appetite for US practitioners to, to go there with their patients. Um, and as educators, you know, it will enable us to, to actually have something you know, there is now something FDA approved on our slides because at the moment, every time we even talk about myopia control, you have to have listed everywhere about the fact that you know I am I am I am talking about this, but please bear in mind it's not FDA approved. As Debbie mm. said, doesn't mean that it's not a good option. It just means that you have to be very cautious in how you uh, you educate about it. And Kate, I think there's going to be another driving force, which is going to be parents. So it's not going to be long before there are um, advertisements or you know whatever the companies tend to uh, to go to in terms of public information and um, the public have an appetite for good clinical information and certainly recommendations from practitioners and recommendations from companies and i think practitioners will find that patients are asking for certain things or certainly they're asking what the options are available and if they don't do it, then somebody else will. So yeah. from a practice builder perspective, practitioners would be very myopic and excuse the pun to not <laughs> jump on the myopia control um, bandwagon because patients will be asking for it or parents will be asking for it. And I think as a profession, we have an obligation to you know, develop some uh, some more educational resources for patients, for um, the parents of these MARPA kids. Generic education that's patient-focused, uh, that they can understand, but actually provides it with information. Because Dr. Google's out there. You know, people are now going to be Googling about this. Well, what's this, what's this myopia slowing thing that I've heard about? Um, and there is a lot of people who, who you know, myopia is a big is a big topic that they're beginning to understand. And so I think we have got to be, we've got to be prepared to start developing some generic, well-focused, patient-facing material that they can be using. 
Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, a whole bunch of, of really crucial points into in understanding how this comes into practice. And, and we know that parents understand that there's something wrong about their child's myopia progressing. You know, they, they feel that something is wrong about it, but uh, we'll definitely go searching for those answers. And essentially what I'm hearing from both of you is there's there's no excuse for reticence anymore on the practitioner's part. We have to be ready to educate our patients and parents, and we have to be ready to educate them as a profession, both um, within the US, within other countries, and right across the world to make sure they receive good information about uh, childhood myopia control. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. And, and there, there are practice development opportunities here as well. It's, it's not just a case of there being an opportunity to you know, provide very solid evidence for patients that will slow the progression of myopia. But, but certainly as we see the erosion of the typical way that our practices get funded in terms of spectacle and contact lens sales, you know, that erosion is happening globally with, with online sales now and it's becoming a very competitive world. If I was still in practice, you know, Debbie and I were in practice for 12, 13 years in the UK, and if I was looking to develop my practice now, the, the three areas that I would really be looking at would be myopia control, specialty contact lenses, and dry eye. I think there is a, an appetite. We, you know, we need to, as a profession, own this space. We have solid evidence about the fact there is a good reason for this to happen, and I think think we need to grab this an opportunity to um, provide a better service for patients, but also to grow our practices too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important consideration from the practice building perspective is that every myopic child who comes in has at least one parent or guardian who's with them, yeah. if not the whole family involved in discussions around the dinner table about how they should be managed and what the options are. And if we're talking about contact lenses to children, then that could mean that contact lens options are being opened up to parents as well, who perhaps hadn't understood that contact lenses were even an option for them as well. Yeah, yes, very much absolutely. So. Yeah. And this, this is really mainstream optometry. It's not specialized care. It is mainstream optometry. And it's really um, what you should be offering your patients. You owe it to your patients to offer them the best, um, and it's not difficult to do that. It's interesting. When I go out and do some of these CE talks, one of the things that I often get asked is, how difficult is it to fit these lenses? And so, you know, well, these are, these are really complex designs, and, you know, re really the lens is, is too big. I'm only fitting a, a six- or seven-year-old, and, you know, is the lens going to fit? Well, what, what have you, what, what's your kind of thoughts on that? So I think if we're talking about the different options available to you, I mean, if we're looking just at the US at just FDA approval, then obviously you've only got one option, which is the MySight lens. And speaking to that specifically from our research here, it looks like a lens, it feels like a lens, it behaves like a lens, and, and really nothing more or less than that. It's a regular soft lens, um, easy to fit on patients. It's a one-fit lens, so it doesn't fit everybody, um, but it is just like a regular contact lens. Now, some of the other options you may need more specialized equipment. And so this is where practitioners need to be aware of where their comfort zone is and what they're um, comfortable fitting to their patients or recommending to their patients, and then work with their other clinicians in the area. So if, for example, somebody is not comfortable fitting ortho K, um, then refer your patient to somebody who is. But in terms of most of the options available, they are very simple and, as I said, mainstream optometry. So they're very they're very simple to fit, which is what you said. And Debbie, you're a, a co-author on the the obviously the landmark paper, which has been a foundation of this FDA approval for MySight. Now, in terms of fitting to children, the MySight FDA 
approval release says that it's been approved for children aged 8 to 12 at the time of initiation of treatment. So if the patient in our chair is a bit younger or a bit older than this, but they're suitable for my site, what should we do as eye care practitioners? Does this mean we can't fit them or we just need to have a slightly different conversation? And what, what should we do if we have a 7-year-old or a 13-year-old? Well, that's an interesting conversation, really, because the reason they chose 8 to 12 is because that's what the clinical study, that's the age group of the, the participants in the clinical study. So the FDA has looked directly at the results of the, of the study and have come out with the 8 to 12. Ultimately speaking, though, it is just a contact lens. And so, you know, even though you may be fitting outside either of those age uh, parameters, so earlier than eight or later than 12, we still have a patient that we're fitting with a contact lens and we're just using that contact lens in an off-label way. So if you imagine a 14-year-old who came into you wanting a contact lens for sport and you fit them, you're just fitting them with a contact lens. And I think you need to look at this in exactly the same way. So you are using it off label, but it shouldn't make you not fit it to a child if you think it's the right course of action in the same way as the other myopia control options to you are also being used off label. I think that's a really important point about the simplicity of fitting. So the MySight's a daily disposable. It's a one base curve lens. Uh, you fit it um, based on best vision sphere. So obviously astigmatism is a consideration for, for fitting. But that if we're getting too, we need to be educated about myopia control and myopia management to be able to have those conversations with parents. But also we're just fitting a contact lens at the same time. We're just fitting a daily disposable contact lens with a bit more information. So the on and the off label element of, of the myopia control is a very important part of the conversation, but it isn't necessarily influencing just the work that we have to do in, in fitting a child with contact lenses. And, and as you've said, that should be a fairly simple fit because it's a fairly easy lens to work with. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would hate for practitioners to think, oh, well, I've got a seven-year-old. I can't do it. I mean, it, mm. yes, you're still fitting it. And you're, yes, in that case, you are using it off-label. But just as, you know, people globally around the world now have been for many years now making choices through an informed choice, through knowing what the uh, the evidence to support it is, using atropin or specs or orthokay or, or contact lenses, um, it would be a travesty if practitioners were to think that's only the age group that I can fit with this lens. No, it's the only age group that you can fit on label, but there sure are a heck of other groups of people that you uh, that you can use both other treatment modalities as well as different age groups. And I would hope that practitioners understand why the 8 to 12 age group is there and that's something that we need to make sure practitioners are aware that that is actually yeah. what the clinical study was mm -hmm. um, you know if we had been 7 to 11 then that's the age that would be in there if we've been 9 to 13 so the age group was 8 to 12 so that's all we have direct clinical evidence from a randomized clinical study that's being published so that's why the, that age group is the one that the FDA selected and for no other reason. But, but interestingly, actually, Kate, thinking about the so, so Debbie was the, the the PI on that study here. You know, kids who were 12 at the time they were entered. We've now got six years worth of data on those on those kids. Yeah. So we're now having kids who are actually driving to their own appointments, which is somewhat bizarre in a modern <laughs> study. But you know, very good evidence of those kids who were 14 and 15 still 
having a slowing of progression of myopia, even though they are outside of this age group. So it still works outside of that age group. It's just that's what the approval for is because that's what their recruitment was at the time of the start of the study. But it still works outside of that window. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And the thing about the uh, specific age group that has been uh, specified in the approval 8 to 12 is I think that also sings to practitioners that you can fit children with contact lenses younger than perhaps you think. And I'm just thinking to prescribing surveys and the average age that we would tend to fit a child with contact lenses. And, And I know if we're talking about just standard contact lens fitting for the child who's got a high level of amyotropia and they want contact lenses for sport, for example, we might possibly be a little bit resistant, uh, a little bit um, hesitant to fit children younger than 12, even younger than 10. So I think the fact that it is approved for 8 to 12 is another really important signal to the profession that you that you should be fitting 8-year-olds, that you can fit 8-year-olds and that it's safe. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I think practitioners need to um, come away from that. Uh, You know, you have to be almost a teenager before you're responsible enough and you're able to handle a contact lens. We have good evidence through this and other studies to show that young children can wear contact lenses. They can handle them. They can look after them. And actually, they do very well. And largely because the parents are there supporting them. And you've got that other little bit of a safety net that you have got parental oversight with your younger children than you perhaps don't have with your teenagers. So um, yeah, there's very, very good evidence to show that young children can wear lenses successfully. And we've got a lot of kids over here for sport. So in in Canada, lots and lots of kids are enrolled in all sorts of sports, but in particular, soccer and hockey, neither of which do particularly well in spectacle. So, you know, we we have a a lot of kids here who come in for part-time wear for sport only and do extremely well at, at very young ages. Yeah, we definitely have evidence that children aged 8 to 12 appear to be safer contact lenses, uh, contact lens wearers, if anything, compared to teens. And as you mentioned, Debbie, that's likely due to that parental oversight at that age. So it definitely can be done. Yeah, and we know that teenagers don't listen to people, but young kids do, typically. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that's definitely the key factor. (laughs) Absolutely. So if we just duck back to the on and off label the issue just for a moment what should be our off-label checklist so we've got my site it's now fda approved that opens the gateway for prescribing that's yeah that's it's such an important moment for myopia control both in the us and right across the world but my site might, might not fit every single child in your chair for example you've got a, a child with 150 doctors of astigmatism you know, we can't necessarily fit a, a mycelite. We might need to look to a different treatment, which will be off-label. Yeah. So what would you consider our off-label checklist? What do we need to do as practitioners to appropriately and judiciously prescribe something that's off-label? I think you've you just got to know the literature. You, you just have to you know, really be comfortable with knowing that there is evidence around that supports the use of that in that individual child. And the only way you can know that is by reading reviews, reading material that's online, that's come ideally from peer-reviewed sources. Um, So, for example, things like your report, Kate, and you were the author of of one of the other IMI papers looking at the options uh, and availability and and success performance of uh, various, various options. Those are downloadable from the IMI website. Um, There are other 
very good source of information at things like continuing education meetings, um, you know, doing undertaking webinars, but you do need to keep up to date. You need to know that whatever you're prescribing for that kid um, actually has evidence behind it uh, being able to be used. And then you have to look at the individual child. You know, there may well be some kids who are just not a good choice for contact lenses, may well be better suited to spectacles or to, for example, uh, low-dose atropine. So it's a case of knowing your literature and then summing up whether for that individual child in in your chair, um, the the things like cost implications and uh, availability and will that child be able to use this in a way that uh, it, it, that you know they're actually getting the use out of it. It, it. There's no point prescribing, for example, atropine or spectacles if they're not going to use it. Uh, it's mm. the results we know is are very very much based upon compliance with that procedure. And you know, if you prescribe an ortho K lens for a child and they, for whatever reason, opt not to use it, then that's not a very sensible choice. Um, so it, it's horses for courses in my mind. Mm. And so, Debbie, sorry, Debbie, I was going to ask you from the practitioner to parent uh, interface, what do you think is the off-label checklist for off-label prescribing? I think it's just educating the parent about the choice you've made, why you've made it, and whether it's on or off-label. So if it is an off-label option, you just need to make sure they understand that. I would certainly recommend that you have some sort of checklist that you've gone through and have the patient sign it. So have an informed consent in the same way as you might with a regular contact lens. You might say, you know, I know I should wash my hands. I know I should not spit on my lenses, whatever you choose to use. Have some sort of checklist that you go down. Um, But when you're explaining to parents about off-label, you should make sure that they're not afraid that it's something that's unsafe. So the analogy I gave you a while ago, something like acetaminophen, you take a double dose because your headache is absolutely rampaging, or you've had a serious injury and your doctor says you can take two of this to start with, or you you know, you know load up on an antibiotic, um, you're using it off-label, but it doesn't mean it's unsafe. And so that's usually the, the analogy that I use. And in fact... I've read somewhere that in an emergency room situation, something like 90% of drugs are prescribed off-label. And it's usually because it's a loading dose or a higher dose. So off-label doesn't mean unsafe. Not being aware of the literature as a practitioner and knowing what's out there in the big wide world and what your peer group would do is potentially unsafe. So um, I think in a situation, and what I usually say to practitioners is if you're using something off-label, You need to be using it in a way that the peer group around you would support, because if a patient complains about you for whatever reason, and your professional body looks at what you how you've managed that patient, they're going to look to see whether you've managed the patient in a way that is supported by clinical evidence and a savvy practitioner in the same situation would do the same. And if you're confident, if you can sleep at night knowing that you've done the best for your patients based on the evidence, then you need not worry at all about off-label. You just need to make sure the parent understands. Fantastic. I think that's a a really wide-ranging discussion that we've had about what this FDA approval means, but also talking about how we can build practices, contact lens safety and fitting in children, uh, how we should approach 
myopia management in general and how this is becoming more and more an integral part of primary care practice, something that really should be owned by primary care. So thank you so much to both of you for for this chat. I think it's been really illuminating and hopefully our listeners will, will gain a lot from this. And the main thing I imagine I really want them to gain is confidence, that this is another really important flag for confidence in myopia management, confidence in managing children in general, and that this is a really important thing we can do for children, both for now, but also for their lifelong eye health. Absolutely. Yep. This is, uh, we're changing the face of optometry and it's very, very exciting. Yeah. Great, great time to be an optometrician. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'll, I'll leave you two to finish up your afternoon. For me, it's um, early in the morning in Brisbane, so I've got to have some breakfast and head off to work and manage some young myopic eyes myself. So <laughs> thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Great You're chatting welcome. as always, Kate. Thanks, Kate. Thanks have a very good day. much. Yeah, bye.